You are listening to the Galena Missions Podcast, the preaching ministry of Galena Bible Church. Follow along as we study God's Word together. Go ahead and take your Bible and join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Gospel of John, chapter 1. We're starting a, a three week series. Um, I guess technically a four-week series, but the fourth one will be on Sunday, culminating in the Advent. And uh, as we said, Advent means the coming, uh, and it is this anticipation of a reminder of uh, Christ's first Advent, a remembering of what He has done in coming the first time, but a anticipation of His second coming. And so we're going to be looking at that uh, theme throughout Scripture Today we're going to be looking at uh, Advent, the Incarnation, or the Word Became Flesh, uh, from John chapter 1. The the old saying goes that those who don't know history are what? Destined to repeat it, right? And so it is one of those things that's... um, uh, you know, some some people it seems nerdy to know history, um, but there is a lot of wisdom in it, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in knowing church history um, as well. The church has had a lot of uh, conflict over the years. In fact, it's the reason we have most of the New Testament was because there were conflicts in the church, and Paul had to write to those churches to deal with specific controversies. But even at the end of the close of the New Testament, there were controversies that came up. There was a, the controversy of what was called Gnosticism. Uh, that uh, erupted in uh, the first several hundred years of the church. Um, and that rears its ugly head every now and again now uh, in things like, you guys remember that uh, the movie and book that came out a while back called The Da Vinci Code uh, that was there. Sometimes you'll see a news article that'll talk about new discovery, the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Mary. And one thing to know it's not new. We've known about these things for a really long time, uh, and it's just the same thing called Gnosticism. Uh, there was, uh, the next kind of big thing that came up was something called, uh, uh, today we call it modalism. At the time it was uh, Sibelianism, named after Sibelius, a guy um, who was the proponent of that. Uh, and modalism was the idea that uh, Trinity, the idea of three or one God and three persons, as we understand that, was not true. That it was one God, one person that took on different modes. So think, there was God the Father who ceased to be God the Father and He became the Son. Ceasing, the, the Father no longer exists. Now it's just the Son in that mode or that form. And then He ceased to be the Son and is now the Holy Spirit as He operates in that. And that was a big um, issue uh, in about the uh, 3rd century, 200s A.D. time frame. Um, that shows up in a couple of different scenarios in our present day um, world, specifically uh, in what is called Oneness Pentecostalism. Um, one of the main proponents of that, if you may be familiar with the name, T.D. Jakes, um, they hold to that, that, uh, that understanding, uh, a denial of the Trinity. Uh, in that time frame, there was a reaction to that, as there oftentimes is with controversy. And so uh, when you have a reaction to things, sometimes the pendulum swings all the way to the other side away from that. And so the reaction of modalism uh, came about uh, or culminated in a guy named Arius uh, who... His heresy is now known by his name, Arianism. And his statement was this, that yes, or that uh, 
Jesus and the Father are distinctly different and that uh, Jesus is a created being uh, that uh, God gave authority of divinity upon and he made the statement that there was a time when Jesus was not. So acknowledging that some of the scripture that says you know all things were made by Jesus but honing in on this that Jesus was begotten of God and so that he was a created being separate from the Father. Do you see the pendulum swing of that away from modalism saying they're one thing that's just changed and saying no, 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 they're completely two totally different things have nothing, you know, in that, in that kind of sense uh, and that reaction of that um, spread throughout the early church in around the 300s uh, A.D., so much so that it became such a big problem that the um, the emperor of Rome at the time, a man known as Constantine, had to call a special meeting to gather all of the pastors of all of the churches and all of that region together to deal with that issue. And Arius came along with a number of others and they met at what is now known as the Council of Nicaea. Uh, you may have heard of the Nicene Creed that came out of this. And it was a reaction to this thing. What does the church believe? What do the scriptures teach at that event? Event. And at the Council of Nicaea, there's a number of interesting things about that. Nearly 80% of the bishops that were in attendance at the Council of Nicaea uh, were physically maimed individuals because of their faith. So in other words, these were pastors who had been persecuted physically, had recovered, and were a part of this. So imagine just a room full of people who had been beaten and stoned and blinded and all kinds of things because of their faith. One of the older bishops that was in attendance at the Council of Nicaea, uh, we don't actually know a ton about him other than that he was there. Uh, he was the bishop of um, Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey, southern Turkey, and his name was Bishop Nicholas. And upon entering, the, the story about him is that upon entering the meeting room and meeting Arius for the first time, he promptly proceeded to strike him across his face. And for his statements about the inferiority of Jesus. That's right, folks. St. Nicholas is historically known as an individual who punched a heretic. So when you think of Christmas and the story of Christmas, this issue of the divinity of Jesus and His co-equalness with the Father, uh, one God, three persons, the distinctive of the Trinity, it does settle on a Christmas character as we think of the reality of that. This issue of the incarnation, it's another one of those uh, $60,000 churchy words, incarnation, literally uh, the defined as God becoming flesh, is a component that is central to us as Christians. We do not have Christianity apart from the theological understanding of the incarnation. And and so as we look at that today, uh, it is one of the most fundamental, significant, and confusing aspects of Christian theology. Jesus is not the first human being to ever walk around on planet Earth that claimed to be God. 
there have been a lot of human beings over the course of history uh, that uh, at some level claimed divinity, claimed godness upon themselves. Everybody from uh, pharaohs uh, to um, Roman emperors to even as recent as uh, Japanese um, emperors have claimed an element of divinity upon themselves. But he is certainly the first human being to ever make this claim that was able to substantiate it by actions with any credibility. Uh, We know from his life that those who had never walked could walk at the mere command of his voice. Those who were blind from birth could see after he simply mixed mud, put it on their eyes, and they were able to see. Dead people, some of whom had been dead for only a couple of hours, and others who had been dead in the tomb for days, were brought back to life simply by Jesus saying so. And when he himself was subjected to the precision execution of Roman guards, he came back to life and was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. The reality of the divinity of Christ as a uh, claim upon Himself is pretty hard to deny. So why did the Son become flesh and live on earth? That's really the question that we're going to be asking this morning. Why is it, why go through all of the trouble of the Incarnation? This is what our text this morning hopefully is going to lead us towards. Look with me in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It reads this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. And then skip down to verse 14. This is the key text that we're going to be wrestling with today. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory. The glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. The word. The, uh, the description that the Apostle John uses to begin this, uh, his gospel with as he is telling the life story, the good news story of Jesus. Uh, the gospel of John is considered to be one of the um, latest books of the New Testament uh, as it was written. John, the Apostle, was the youngest of the disciples, um, the only one of the uh, disciples of Jesus who actually lived into uh, uh, age became an old man. The others were martyred in the flesh. And the way he begins to describe Jesus in the beginning of this is interesting. He uses a odd word to describe Jesus. Uh, the Greek word that is used here is logos. We translate it as the word. As it is applied to Jesus, the term implies both an Old Testament concept of the powerful creative word of God and the Greek idea of the organizing and unifying principles of the universe. It's a big word uh, 
that it contains a lot of information, but it is just simply translated as the Word. In Genesis 1, how does God create all things? By the Word of His mouth. God doesn't take something that exists and then manipulate it to then become what we see now. It says that there was nothing, and in the beginning God said, spoke, and light was. God said, and earth was. God said, and the separation of earth and sky was. All of those things came by the application of the power of God simply speaking. And in John chapter 1, verse 1, it solidifies the Old Testament reality of the Trinity in this creation event. Right, he says, in the beginning uh, was the Word, and the Word was with God, side by side, with God, and the Word was God, one on top of the other. This is one of those passages of Scripture that when you read it, and you read it carefully, and then you try to make logical sense of it, you're going like... You're, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't, this doesn't fit the way that I, I think I understand the way in which the world works. How can somebody be with somebody but be that person, right? How does that, how does that coincide? Surely they made a mistake, but the reality of this passage is that it just lays out what is true and doesn't explain it. doesn't um, make it such that it just makes logical sense to us. It just states something that is reality and says, well, there it is. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates the world, He gets to the end of His creation and He makes His final uh, creative act before resting on the seventh day. And when he does that, he makes man. And the, the Hebrew Scriptures, and I remember that the Hebrews had a very, the Jews had a very clear understanding of one God. That was a, a key concept in their world, which was odd amongst everybody else in their world at the time. They believed in one God. And yet, believing in one God, when God had them uh, divinely write the Scriptures, they said something odd when they came to make man. They said, let us make man in our own image. One God, us, our. Even the word God, uh, Elohim, in, uh, in Hebrew is a plural word. And yet it is always talked as one God. How is this, or how how can this uh, confusion? How can we help us grapple with the reality of what he's saying here? Well, we see the Trinity in the first description of how God makes the world. It says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Now the earth was void and formless, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. And into that chaos, it says, and God said." Let there be light. So we see the Father in His creative order. We see the Spirit's presence moving amongst what it is that God is doing and accomplishing that. And we see the very Word of God coming forward. We see the Trinity in the first three verses of Scripture. And yet, we don't see that in its fullness or in full understanding until much later. 
Uh, as God speaks all of this, literally God logosed His Word into the world and created all things. This is why John can write that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you're ever in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, uh, and you come to, they, they will argue that Christianity, as we understand it, is actually polytheism, believing in multiple gods, not just uh, one god. And if you take their Bible and, and they want to read it from you, they translate this passage differently. They translate it, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They put a definite article that's in there. Problem is that definite article does not exist anywhere in the actual Greek text. There is a poignant reality to this thing that is saying, holding intention, something that seems odd. That this logos, this word, was with God in communion and in fellowship with God, but was simultaneously was God. In Trinitarian terms, we understand this as one God in three persons. John 1, 2, uh, we see the non-Jewish understanding of Lagash. Remember we said that this choice of this word points back to the Jewish understanding, but points forward to the their present day. Uh, he says in it, um, He was with God in the beginning. In the beginning of all things. All things were created through Him and apart from Him was not one thing uh, was created that has been created. In other words, everything that is created, everything that was made in heaven and on earth, all things were created through and by and for the Word. The Word was the one that did that. It is the one that defines all things. So, in a sense, it's a trick question if, you, if so you're doing Bible Jeopardy or something and somebody says, who created all things? And you say, well, God did. Yes. But the Scriptures say specifically it was the Word. It was Jesus. Paul, The Apostle Paul later on says, all things were made by Him and for Him and in Him holds all things together. Does John leave any room for Jesus to be a created being here? If all things that have ever existed exist because of Him, that doesn't leave any room for Him to be a created thing in that. He has existed from all time. No, of course, uh, that does not leave any room for that. The Greek philosophers, to the Greek philosophers, the Logos was the central idea that defined and gave reality to everything. Logos was logic. It was truth. It was philosophy. It was history. It was uh, their understanding of science. The Logos was the logic of everything. The, way, the defining way in which all things worked. That was the way the Greeks uh, thought about things. It was the definition of everything in one single word. And John closes that uh, Old Testament and New Testament thought in verse 4 by saying, In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, the purpose of men, the reason for men to exist. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness is not 
over, or did not overcome it. Not only is Jesus the reason that everything is, but He is the one who gives meaning and purpose and reality to everything. The word here is not some idea or force or movement. Jesus is not some good idea or uh, moral expression or any other kind of spiritualized understanding of this. The Word is God Himself in the flesh. The Word became flesh, as John says. At the end of October, an event took place that made scientific news. I found it to be absolutely fascinating um, as it, the, the news article just came out about it this last week. A woman gave birth to healthy twins. A boy and a girl. Now Molly's going, Psh, that's, that's old news. We've, yeah, lots of us ladies have handled that. What made news this newsworthy was that these particular precious babies took a new record for the oldest babies ever born. At their birth, they were just over 30 years old. And you go, okay, Chris, I don't know if you understand how birth works in this reality. Let me explain. 30 years ago, there were two individuals that went to a clinic for a procedure called in vitro fertilization. And they uh, gave a number of eggs and a number of sperm. Those were joined together and began to replicate inside of a Petri dish. And they did multiples of those. Uh, and they took some of those and implanted that in that woman. And the remaining five they froze in liquid nitrogen. And from 30 years ago until not too long ago, those individuals, uh, those um, babies that were uh, conceived in that manner were frozen. And through a process uh, which is becoming a more common thing of um, in vitro or embryo adoption, this Christian woman whose name is Rebecca and her husband decided that they wanted to adopt these embryos and give them a, a womb to grow in. Uh, of those five, uh, when they were thawed, only three were continuing to replicate, meaning that the other two did not survive the freezing process. Uh, and all three of those embryos were implanted in her, and only two of those took in that uh, process. And she gave birth to these two children who were conceived in the early 90s. Everything about this story fascinates me. Uh, everything about it just seems uh, like there's just so many questions that I have about the reality of how this works. And there's also questions that fall into the reality of the, um, the morality of these things. That currently, today, uh, there are over a million embryos in cryogenic states uh, in the United States alone. And if we believe that uh, life happens at conception, uh, then there is a unique crisis that is taking place in the middle of that. And it, in thinking about this story and just the, the oddity that is that, I mean, just, you know, 
It's just such a strange story. It awakens in my heart even more deeply the unique way in which the incarnation took place of Jesus coming to us. It becomes this story that's so familiar, right? We're familiar of the baby Jesus. It's, it's just something that we, we know and we, we don't think about in, uh, in crazy kind of terms. Dr. Wayne Grudem wrote uh, some clarity on this subject in his uh, systematic theology book. He wrote that the virgin birth uh, gave, or made possible the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. This was the means God used to send His Son into the world as a man. And if we think for a moment of other possible ways in which Christ might have come to earth, none of them would so clearly unite humanity and deity in one person. Uh, It probably would have been possible for God to create Jesus as a complete human being in heaven and send Him to descend from heaven to earth without the benefit of any human parents. But then it would have been very hard for us to see how Jesus could be fully human as we are, nor would He be part of the human race that is physically descended from Adam. On the other hand, it probably would have been possible for God to have Jesus come into the world with two human parents, both a father and a mother, and with His full divine nature miraculously united to His human nature at some point in His early life. But then it would have been hard for us to understand how Jesus was fully God since His origin was like ours in every way. When we think of these two other possibilities, it helps us to understand how God in His wisdom ordained a combination of human and divine influence in the birth of Christ so that His full humanity would be evident to us from the fact of His ordinary human birth from a human mother, and His full deity would be evident from the fact of His conception in Mary's womb by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth of Mary to Jesus has caused huge controversy in the church over the last hundred years. Uh, there has been a tension within the church uh, as we have wrestled with science and Christianity and uh, even in the story of these 30-year-old uh, embryos that have been recently given birth, we know that the reality of birth in humanity is that it takes two to tango, right? You have to have two parts for this thing to transpire. And so the virgin birth of Mary of Jesus just seems so, yeah, sure, the Holy Spirit came upon you, right? Well, the Scriptures tell us that that Mary felt this even in her own day. It doesn't guard over the fact that this was a, a tense reality for them. And it is so central to us as Christians to understand the fullness of who Jesus is, God in the flesh, or even as we sing Emmanuel, God with us, that the Word became flesh is an incredible theological thought. That the Word became flesh should have no wonder to us is a tragedy. Either that it has become so familiar to us that we neglect its significance, or we don't really believe the reality that God, fully God, has touched this earth with a unique human fingerprint. Which is easier, 
for you. To speak your opinion online to a stranger that you'll never meet. Or to look across a table into the eyes of a spouse that you have cheated on. Which do you think would be more difficult? Probably looking across the table at a person. Rather than somebody you'll never meet and don't really care what they think. When we treat Jesus more like words on the page than a friend we have known, then we nullify the reality of this truth that the Word became flesh. Jesus is not just an idea. He's not just a moral uh, example for us. He's, He's not just a good teacher from the past that taught good principles that we as human beings ought to apply to our lives and whatever other spiritualized thing. Jesus either is nobody or He's God in the flesh. Or as the classic term of uh, argument that C.S. Lewis had, he is either a man that was insane, and if he's insane, we shouldn't listen to him. He was either a liar, and of whom we should not listen to, or he was God. And that changes everything. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John goes on to say, we have seen His glory. This is a statement of testimony. John is writing this as an account of his own seeing. Of saying, we have seen this. We have observed this. We have walked with Him. We have experienced this. It's one of the most profound things, I think, of the nature of Christianity and of the birthing of the early church is that uh, of all of the disciples, John's the only one that makes it to old age because all the other ones were martyred. And here's the thing in their martyrdom, in their, their deaths, they were killed. Now, a martyr, the word martyr literally means a, a, a witness, one who testifies, one who declares this. The reason that they were martyred was because they were going to their grave saying, what we have seen is true and you can take my life. I'm not backing away from that. Think about that for a moment. Do you think anybody would have that kind of commitment to a lie? That somebody would go to the point of saying, yeah, Skin me alive. I'm going to stick to this not truth. It's ridiculous. John says, we have seen His glory through all this poetic and philosophical and theological nature of everything that he just described in this. What John is saying is that they personally witnessed this. They saw these actions. They saw Jesus do these things. Christmas, Christ Mass, as it is uh, made up in English, the worship of Christ, is the celebration of what we give testimony to. It's not just about presents and Christmas trees and good food and those kind of things. All of that is in celebration of the reality of what we testify to, of who Jesus is and what He's accomplished. But can we say... Like John, we have seen His glory. 
I don't know about you, but I've never actually seen Jesus. I've never shook his hand. I've never sat down and had a cup of coffee with him. I've, you know, I don't know what his eye color is or what his hair color is or any of those kind of things. I've, I've never physically met him. So can I say like John, we have seen his glory? So it may be easy to look at this passage as, as, as a bit of information that was solely for those in Jesus' day. But in verse 16, he says this. He says, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from His fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only or the one and only Son, who is Himself God and is at the Father's side. He has revealed Him. Why does John bring up Moses? Well, Moses is the one who directly asked God to show him his glory. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, it says this, Then Moses said, Please let me see your glory. Moses talking directly to God. And this is how God answered him. God said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. When, God, when Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, do you want to know what my glory is? My glory is my goodness. The goodness of God is the grace and truth that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Nothing is truly real until it has been seen in light of the glory of God. I don't know if we can get that picture back up. Is that not up there? Where is... Is there anything there? Click one more. There you go. Let's leave it right there. Leave it right there. Nothing is truly real unless it has been seen in light of the glory of God. See, the Gospel of Christ is that God did not leave us in our rebellion uh, and dead in our sins without a way of being set right. The way of being set right was that the one by whom and for whom all things were made, visible and invisible, that one would become a single human being, fulfilling all that was promised about him. Going back to the very beginning, when Adam and Eve had sinned, and God looked at the serpent and said, Cursed are you amongst all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall crawl, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the seed of the woman, singular. And He, singular, will crush your head, even though you bruise His heel. Fully God and fully man, He would contend with a nature just like ours. He would be tempted in every way. Sin would be a burden against Him, the same as it is for us. And reveal a nature with one with the Father and, that, uh, and would come through a life lived on this broken world without any sin to mar His life. And in that sinless state he, would state, he would take upon Himself all the just wrath of God towards sin. 
and would satisfy that wrath completely on the cross. Everything that was due us because of our rebellion would fall upon Him. Every time we preach the Gospel, every time we share the Gospel, every time we believe the Gospel, we behold the glory of His goodness. This glory as the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace, undeserved love and favor and truth. It holds up the incarnation, God becoming man, the Word becoming flesh, fulfills all of that in a very unique way. It hasn't been up the whole time, but there's a picture on the screen here. Uh, that has a unique story uh, inscribed on it. Those little scribbles in the middle of it uh, are some ancient Hebrew words. This artifact uh, is what is known as a, a seal. Uh, if you remember back in the ancient world, like think back to movies that you've seen where kings had a ring and they would send a letter and they would pour some wax on it and they'd stick their signet ring in that wax and it would leave there, you know, saying this this document came from this particular king and you know you can't break it open otherwise it's you know compromised or whatever. Uh, that bit of historical information that you see in movies actually was quite real in the ancient world. Um, a lot of times it wasn't a ring, it would be just a small round talisman that they would take and stick on some clay and then mash it in and it would dry and it would become to say who it was and what they were sending. Uh, and in the early 90s there was a, uh, a, a number of these seals that were found. And this one is particularly interesting because of what it reads. It reads, Belonging to Baruch, son of Nira, the scribe. Fascinating, right? I can see you guys are all enthralled in this. Uh, but let me give you a little bit of clarity of what this means. In Jeremiah chapter 36, verse 1, it reads this way. It says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Joash, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah of the Lord, from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the nations from the time I first spoke to you during Josiah's reign until today. So this is the book of Jonah, or sorry, the book of Jeremiah being given, er, being told to Jeremiah the prophet, write this down. And in verse 4, Jeremiah summoned Baruch, son of Nira, the scribe. At Jeremiah's dictation, Baruch wrote on a scroll all the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah. This little thing is that guy's signature. The guy that Jeremiah the prophet met with and, told, and said, write this down. And he was the one, as he dictated it out, Baruch sat and scribe, 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 wrote, 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 wrote. And at the end of it, roll it up and put some clay on it and mash his signet into it. And we found one of them. That's pretty fascinating. But here's the thing that's more fascinating about this particular thing. Do you see on the top hand left... Do you see, there's, there's some kind of striations. It's kind of grainy there, but do you see, kind of see those there's striations kind of off to the top of that? Do you know what those are? 
Take a look at your thumb. Do you see any striations? That's his fingerprint. He mashed it into the thing, and as he was doing it, his thumb rolled, and part of his thumb mashed into the clay as well and left some fingerprint. We have a fingerprint of a guy from Scripture. That's kind of, Historically, that's kind of cool. That's kind of crazy if you think about it. That there's a guy that's in Scripture that wasn't just a guy in Scripture, he was a guy that had a fingerprint. And we can put this guy now in the FBI files. we got the guy's fingerprints, right? That's kind of crazy. The fact that Jesus wasn't just a force, wasn't just an idea, but was a man and touched the earth with a unique human fingerprint. There's, there's, you can go to the places in the world where Jesus literally stood You can walk up the stairs. You can stand at the base of what used to be the Temple Mount. The places where Jesus was. And here's what the Apostle John is saying. When he says, we have beheld His glory, he's saying we are the fingerprints of Jesus on this earth. We are what is left because of the fact that He came in the flesh and touched this earth uniquely. As we begin this season of Advent, thinking about the birth of Jesus, we need to be reminded afresh of the majesty that is. God became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the aspects of that is that when Jesus came and became flesh, He gave His life on a cross for us. And in so doing, He instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. And He said to them, as He took bread and broke it and He gave it to them, He said, this is My body broken for you. If He was an idea or a philosophy or anything else, there would be no body for Him to have broken. And he took a cup and he gave it to them and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant which is my blood poured out for you. If he was not flesh, there would be no blood to shed. And then he gave a statement to the church. He said, perpetually to us as the church, that as we gather around this Lord's Supper, that we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes again. It is a constant reminder for us as Christians that we never outgrow our need for grace. That when we become Christians, it is a miraculous thing. But it's not like we get over the finish line and we're like, yep, it's done. It's saying, I've actually come to the reality that I need Jesus and I will never not need Jesus a billion years from now when we are in glory and we are enjoying His new creation, we will still then need the grace of Jesus just as much as we do today. And so we gather around the Lord's table to remember His broken body and His shed blood for us. So I'm going to invite you to um, spend just a little moment in time in prayer. Scripture tells us that when it comes to the Lord's table, we ought not to eat in a manner that is 
unworthy of what has happened. Meaning, if there is unconfessed sin in our life, as there is uh, anger, bitterness, or resentment that we hold towards another, that we should uh, get that right before observing this. Uh, And spend some time in confession before the Lord. And then I'll pray and invite you to come. We'll take the elements, and then you can, uh, we'll go back to our seats and then um, receive those. Uh, elements together. We do practice open communion in our church, meaning you don't have to be a member of our church to do this, uh, to participate in this. All we ask is that it actually means something to you. Uh, there's no nothing... Um, uh, we're not going to you know, stare at you awkwardly or something if you don't come and receive it. We're just glad that you're here. Um, but we do ask that if if you want to observe the Lord's Supper, that uh, it be out of an act of worship of who Jesus is for you and what He has done for you on the cross. So let me invite you to spend a few moments in prayer. I'll close that and then invite you to come and receive the elements. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've been blessed by the hearing of God's Word. Feel free to connect with us at www.galenabiblechurchak.com and subscribe to this podcast at iTunes or at galenamissions.podbean.com.